Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So, are these your notes? These, <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say? Uh, anything is the short answer. <laughs> so how many novels did you not finish? Oh my from? God, so many. <laughs> Perfect. What's she talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here first. Hello, and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. On today's episode, I'm very lucky to be joined by the uh, the, the winner of the RNAs. 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award, um, number one best-selling author, the godmother of romantic fiction. It's Katie Ford. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. Let's get into it because there's a lot of things that, that I'd, I'd love to talk about. Starting off with um, your latest novel, One Enchanted Evening, which came out um, earlier this year in March. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, this book is the third in a little series of three so far of books that I've set in the 60s. Uh, This was a first for me. I'm not writing full on contemporary novels, but actually once I got into it, I really did love it. Um, It's about three girls who meet at a cookery college, school, little school, which very, very much resembles the one I went to myself, although I went slightly later. I just thought the 60s are slightly sexier than the 70s. So I thought I'll set my books in the 60s. And these three girls meet there and they all have different reasons for being at the college, at this little cookery school. And they each have a story. The first story, A Wedding in the Country, is about Lizzie, whose mother has sent her to the school to learn to cook so she can get a suitable husband. And as far as Lizzie's mother is concerned, that means a bank manager or someone who can be a member of the local golf club. Nice. And then the next one, A Wedding in Provence, is about Alexandra, who is an heiress and quite eccentric and quite independent. And she's been living in this enormously rundown but huge posh house in Belgravia without any of her guardians knowing really what she's been up to. Anyway, they find out what she's been up to and they insist that she joins them in Switzerland to go to a finishing school. Well, Alexandra gets off in Paris because she has always wanted to spend a day in Paris. She only wants a day, not too much to ask, but needless to say, things happen and she never gets to Switzerland. And then the final book is about Meg, who is the only one who went on the cookery course because she really wanted to learn to cook and use her skills professionally. She was brought up by her mother on her own. They're very close as a couple, mother and daughter. And Meg's ambition has always been to earn enough money to get a little flat or somewhere that could be their own home. Because thus far, her mother has always had to take live-in jobs. And the trouble with a live-in job, if your your employer makes a pass at you, 
um, you have to leave your job and your home, which is very difficult and inconvenient. And so this is the third in the series. And Meg's mother has invited her to help her with this little hotel in Dorset. And Meg is only too happy to go because Meg really loves a challenge. And so off she sets and adventures begin. Amazing. And that's and and that's this book, the, the third one in the series, One Enchanted Evening, out now. Now that this is out, is this would this be book number 31 for you? Do you know, I keep losing count <laughs> because I wrote I've written the, the novels which come out um in the ordinary way, but then mm-hmm. I've done two anthologies ah. of Christmas stories and short stories and a quick read. So I'm a bit vague. It might be, let's call it book 30, because I think that sounds quite <laughs> good. And it may yeah. be 31, but I think it's probably, let's say 30. Yes. And all future books will be book 30. It'll I always be the so. 30th book. I think it's like staying 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So do you ever, having written, I mean, it's it's a great many books. It's an incredible accomplishment just to have had that many books written and, and published. Do you ever look back at your earlier writing and kind of like scour through it? I, if I do, I either think, oh, my goodness, it was all so fresh then. <laughs> I can't write like that now. Or I think, well, um, I don't know really how these books got published, but there they are. <laughs> so I assume they must have been okay at the time. <laughs> um, I'm always hoping that if ever I become a very doddry old lady and can still <laughs> read but can't remember anything, I might be able to read my own books and see if I enjoy them. Oh, uh, <laughs> the but, ultimate test. Yes, it is a bit strange having written so many books and I can never remember them all. If I'm trying to get to sleep sometimes, I'll try and remember all my titles and I never end up with the right number. Even if I've got to decided what number I'm looking for, there's always books I've missed out. And I just think, well, how could I have missed out that one? I loved writing that. Yeah. I mean, looking back, I always think I've enjoyed writing every book. But actually, when I'm actually writing them, I think this is really hard work. Why am I doing this? <laughs> well, I think uh, some people say, you know, it's worth doing if it's if it's like hard work, if it's a challenge. So, yes, I think so. And I wouldn't not do it. I, I, when I think about retiring, I think, OK, what would I do instead? And I sort of think about it. And I think, well, I'd get up and I'd go to my computer and check my emails. And then what would I do? I just, and I can't think of anything that I really want to be doing. So I think, well, I'll just carry on doing it. And after all, it's not digging a ditch. So, you know, it's hard work, but it's hardly backbreaking. Yes. But it's, but it's, uh, there's a great like um, catharsis to, I think, finishing something like, like a book or, or lots of like creative things where you're so involved with something that you're kind of creating from scratch and to see it in its final form is, it, there's so much validation, I think, that comes from just completing stuff like that. It is nice, actually, to have created characters and giving them a story and managing to tell it in a way that people can understand it and actually feel that these people are real and these things really could have happened to them, even although it is all just made up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to test your memory here as well. I, I wonder if you can remember when you, when you first, was it 95 that you published your first novel? Yes, that's right. So when you... Back then, when you you were first kind of like getting into the industry and publishing and things like that, was it? Um, what was it like? Like, what was what was what were the kind of challenges? If you remember, like, was it signing with an agent, signing with a publisher? What kind of stuff did you really struggle with? 
I found an agent. An agent was sort of found for me by devious means by a wonderful woman called Dr. Hilary Johnson, who's a book doctor. And then she was a scout for an agency. And she knew my work through the Romantic Novelists Association and suggested me. And I met the agent, Sarah Malloy, who I found really scary at the time, but was absolutely wonderful. And she helped me get off the Mills and Boone treadmill, which I'd been on. I'd been trying to write a Mills and Boone novel for about seven years, six or seven years, and never quite made it. I was always getting nearly there. And I was getting nearly there enough for me to keep on thinking, oh, I'm so close. I must be able to get it right this time. But I never did. But she got me off that treadmill and encouraged me to write something much closer to what I needed to be writing. And she managed to find a publisher for that first book before I'd finished it. So that part was easy. And then I had a, an amazing stroke of luck, which was being selected for WH Smith's Fresh Talent promotion, which was like the Richard and Judy of its day, mm-hmm. because you got reviews in all the local papers You had, rather embarrassingly, cardboard cutouts of you and your fellow (laughs) winners of this great thing um, in the cover, in the window of Smith's Mm -hmm. all over the country. And Smith's was, at that time, the biggest bookseller, the most important bookseller. If you weren't taken by Smith's, you had no chance at all. It's changed now. Now it's uh, Tesco's. But then it was Smith's. And I was lucky enough to... Have this accolade, and I was, you know, it just gave me such a good start. So that's when my good luck really, really started. But I'd had eight years of hard work before I had the good luck. Uh, so I feel I was in a good position to make the most of it because I had learnt my craft. I don't think it's any use to writers to have an amazing stroke of luck and get your first novel published if you don't know what you're doing because you always have to write a second novel or a third, or maybe up to 30. And if you don't know how you've done it the first time, it's really, really hard the second time. And to be honest, it's quite hard to do it the second time, even if you have learnt your craft first. Second yes. book's always difficult. I expect you know that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, my, my, the main reason from people that I speak to is is, is because you suddenly have a, a sort of time pressure uh, component, which you didn't really have on the first book. Yes, and you've used up all your best jokes in your first book. <laughs> the jokes you've been thinking of for years and years have suddenly all gone into your one book. <laughs> and you think, yes, you chuck it all in and you say, this is delicious. And then they want you to write a second book and you open the fridge and there's nothing except a shriveled green pepper that's stuck to the bars and some mouldy old cheese. And you've got to make a book out of what seems to be nothing. But in fact, if you trawl your subconscious and you open your mind to the world, there will be enough material to write book two, but it is quite hard. Yeah. Because, and again, because you have a time constraint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas you had all the time in the world to write your first book. You mentioned your agent. You're, you're, you're currently signed with Bill Hamilton. Is that right? That's right. But I'm still with the same agency. Sarah Malloy uh, moved over to children's fiction. 
Ah, because okay. no one else in the agency was at that time interested, and she's subsequently retired. And I've had Bill for a number of years now. I'm not quite sure how long. And at first, <laughs> I thought it was going to be really weird having a a man for an agent, but actually, he's been absolutely brilliant. And I don't bother him too much with the soft stuff. And but he's very tolerant, and in fact. For ages, I didn't used to send him my books. When I'd finished my book, I would send it off to my editor. And then I had mm-hmm. a pathetic little email said, could you copy me in when you're sending your book to your editor? <laughs> I would like to read them myself. And I thought, poor man, he's got enough on his plate. He doesn't want to have to read my boring novels. However, he's very, very sweet and tolerant and I think the best agent ever. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. I was worried when I when I saw the, the when you mentioned a different agent, I was worried that there was going to be some drama. But it sounds like <laughs> sounds like everyone just was doing their own thing. It sounds like absolutely, great. yeah, no yeah. drama. So, speaking about your writing, you know, you've done this many times now. I'm, I'm sure your your process has kind of uh, evolved over over the years. Are there any kind of like habits or rituals that you you kind of like are, you've set in your way? And this is how you write. I don't have that many rituals. I'm rather prone to buying lovely notebooks and starting a novel by writing things in them. And I never use more than about three or four pages. And so (laughs) the notebook goes in the pile of lovely notebooks with nothing written in them because I tend to be more scraps of paper. I'm a terribly disorganised. My desk is absolute chaos. It's only recently been tidied, really recently, and it's already chaos. You can hardly see the surface of it because there's <laughs> papers, there's research material, there's m- notes to myself, there's my to-do list, there's all sorts. There's books waiting to have quotes written for them, piled up. There's books that have had quotes written for them still on my desk, and it is just a muddle. But I think what I have really learned over the years is when something's not working, I can read a, a book. I mean, I'm writing a book now, which is quite out of my comfort zone. It's set in Dominica, which is a little Caribbean island just after a hurricane. And so it's completely different from anything I've written. But I can look at reading it back. I can say, no, this character hasn't earned their place. You know, I've put in a character because I thought it'd be fun to have character X. But, you know, she's not earning her keep. And I can recognise that quite quickly. And I say, mm. well, the hero is not strong enough. I can do quite a lot of my own editing, which is good. Because although I have a wonderful editor, I have a very good relationship with Selena Walker, I like to give it to her in the best condition that I can. So yeah. she doesn't have too much to to say although she always does have quite a lot to say but I relish that actually (laughs) yeah 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 so very disorganized desk are you when it comes to to these novels is it all very planned out or are you sort of you you get an idea and you run with it well when I first started writing I was much more of what they refer to as a pantster yeah (laughs) and you just have an idea and off you go But I used to write very much faster when I was younger. I really did. I could write, I used to write a book every term because when I was trying to write Mills and Boone novels, because I couldn't write during the holidays because I had children. So I could only do it in school hours. And that was a huge amount of words. And I would just rip off a chapter every writing session. But now I have to think much more carefully about it. And I don't terribly like starting a book before I've got a plot. And for this book, I did actually start before I had a plot. I had a different plot and I thought this wasn't really quite working, but I had to go along with it because I couldn't 
you know, there is a time constraint, I have deadlines. But then I found out what was going to happen. And then I write, I, you know, wrote it all down, sent it to Selena, who liked it. But I don't do a huge amount of planning. I don't have a, a spreadsheet. A friend of mine was talking about having a spreadsheet. I barely know what one is. <laughs> and if you say the words narrative arc to me, I have a panic attack. I just <laughs> do it very well. I say instinctively, it's not really instinctive, it's 30 years of experience. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know. I, I mean, I might do a chapter by chapter synopsis just quickly for my own use. But I never stick to it because what you think is a is a line is a chapter. What you think is a chapter is a line. Yeah. So it never it never works out quite as you planned. Yeah. Uh, so I am. I'm, so I'm not really very well organised in anything I do. I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it 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 comes out nice and neatly at the end. So whatever you're doing, it it seems to be working, and you seem to have the process figured out. Well, I hope so. I mean, if it does, that's good. With so many stories now that, that you've that you've penned, are you careful about um, sort of challenging yourself and not retreading the same ground with with new ones? Um, to be honest, I just do. What the, the I will have an idea for the book, and it'll have a story, and I don't think too much about it. I always want to try out new things. I won't write about anything that I don't find interesting. So I'd never write about, say, um, ballet dancing if I didn't want to write about ballet, if I wasn't interested Mm -hmm. in ballet dancing, although um, I possibly could be, but maybe not. (laughs) So I'm always interested in the subject that I'm writing about, and that subject has a story to it. It has a character who is doing it or finds out about it or something. And once I'm in the story, I don't really think about saying, I want to challenge myself. And I really wanted to write a book about Dominica, although it was a huge challenge to myself. And sometimes I wish, you know, I should have stayed with my tried and tested, but (laughs) I didn't. I went, I went with the story that was in my heart and my head. Okay. And I hope that I'll make it work eventually. Yes. Well, fingers crossed. I'm sure, I'm sure you will. I'd love to talk a bit about, and you touched on it briefly earlier. Um, you did mention that you before so before you published your first novel you were already w- um associated well, like with the romantic novelist association yes indeed i was what they called a probationer we call them new writers now and to be honest it's quite difficult to think of a name that isn't in some way wrong but in those days i was a probationer and as long as you turned in a book every year you were allowed to stay a probationer for quite a long time. Although I'm sure when I first joined, you were only allowed three shots. So I don't quite know why. I think they must have changed that rule uh, because I was trying for quite a long time. But in fact, I didn't submit every book I wrote to the scheme because I was, by that time, as I say, I was writing sort of three a year Mm -hmm. or at least partials and sending them off to Mills and Boone. But yes. I didn't, I was so nearly published for so long. It was why I invented the Katie Ford bursary for the person who's been trying for ages and is just not there. Because those are the people that really need the encouragement. You know, you're just, your heart, you know, you think, have I made it this time? Oh, no. And you go back down to um, your um, 
your Slav despondency again. So I wanted to encourage those people because I was in that position for such a long time myself. Although, as I say, looking back, it taught me my craft and I'm not really that sorry. At least if I didn't think that, I would just think, what a huge waste of time, Katie. Why didn't you take the hint earlier when people <laughs> said you weren't really a Mills and Boone author? But yeah. I said, I'm going to make myself one. But I couldn't. It's too difficult. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Yes, I mean, it's one of those things. It's, I mean, it's slightly different, but it's sort of similar. A lot of people will come and we'll talk about the writing for market kind of thing. And I think a lot of authors find success when they stop trying to write for a specific market or like like a, with, within sort of all these constraints which they think people want to read or people want to buy. And then they just write the thing that, that they really love. And that's usually where people seem to find success. Yes. I always say to people, it's a great mistake to follow trends. You see, you know, you go into a bookshop or a a supermarket and you see all these books with the same cover all writing about the same thing and you think oh well that's popular I'll write one of those because it can take a little while to mm. write the book and a little while for the whole publishing process to happen and it could be the trend has passed before you um, your book actually has a chance to reach the sh- the shelves and also I mean if you think sort of gritty psychological crime is the thing but you don't really like it but somehow you manage to do it you're going to have to go on writing gritty psychological crime that you don't really like for the rest of your career. So you yeah. might as well write about some, you know, write something you enjoy writing. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you've got nothing really. Yes, yeah, yeah. Publishers do like to do like authors to sort of stay on brand with themselves, and I, I you know, I, you, you fully understand why a reader will enjoy an author because of a certain thing that's within the books. And if you're writing, you know, some people get away with hopping genres, but it's it's for the most part it's tricky to like maintain a readership if you're hopping vastly between between genres and voices and things yes it is i mean it is possible to write something a bit different and have a slightly different name a friend of mine mandy robottom is just doing that and she's stepping away from the first world war uh, second world war and she's writing under mr robottom well it's obvious it's her and it probably mm-hmm. says writing as on the cover like um ruth Rendell did with her Barbara Vine books. You know it's her, but you know the books are slightly different. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's clued because because then they're sort of the marketing team and 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 such are saying this is that author, but it's going to be slightly different to what you were previously experiencing from that author. Yeah, yeah. So let's getting back to the RNA. How much of an impact um, has the RNA had on on you and and your your writing career? Well, it's been an incredible support. Uh, it, you've, I found my tribe. When I first joined the RNA, I didn't go to meetings or anything. I lived in the country. Well, I still live, but I didn't know any other writers and it was all quite secret. Anyway, in the back of their little publication, which we now have a much smarter publication, then it was a little A4, no, half A4 size 
a, a magazine thing in paper and it had a course advertised in the back of it. And I thought, well, I'll go on this course. And it was quite difficult for me to go because I had to go by train and I there was some problem with the trains and I missed my connection. I arrived terribly late and I literally did not know anyone at this entire conference or little course it was. But I had seen one of the speakers on television, which was the nearest thing <laughs> I had to knowing anybody. However, it really didn't matter because writers recognise each other and it was such bliss to talk to other writers, to people who understood what you were doing, what you wanted to do. And anyone you met in the coffee queue, you had things in common with. And people I met at the course, I'm still friends with today. And then I started going to meetings of the RNA and I met more people. And they've been my support system ever since. Amazing. And then that obviously led up to you becoming um, the president of the RNA for, for, for a tenure. Yes, I was in the olden days. I um, The presidency was sort of passed by one president to the next. Mm -hmm. And I was the third president. But um, times have changed rather a lot since a lovely, lovely, um, I've forgotten her name. Our lovely <laughs> first president uh, has, you know, she was, a, she helped Jewish refugees escape from the war. So we're going back a long time. And then there was Di Pearson, Diana Pearson, who was a writer and a publisher, and she discovered people like Terry Pratchett. And oh, wow. She was amazing. And then she asked me if I would be president. And I had been chair by that time. And I didn't really think I could say no because Di had asked me and she was quite daunting in some ways, <laughs> although she was great fun and I was very, very fond of her. But I didn't really think that I can just appoint somebody because it's it's not really um, acceptable these days not to have some sort of democracy involved mm -hmm. with people having uh, positions. And also, I couldn't actually myself think of the right person. So I thought, well, I, I don't have to actually decide. I don't have to do this myself. I can pass this on to the wonderful uh a board which now run the RNA and they will know who they want and they can make their own provision for finding the next president um, and I'm sure they'll be wonderful and I look forward to finding out who they are. Yeah well that yeah I mean it, that is I think the modern way of doing things is much more by committee and and, uh, and as you say democratic um, and uh, as you as you kind of also announcing that you were stepping down that you were very well deserved in 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 being gifted the Lifetime Achievement Award this year by the RNA. That must have felt very special for you as someone who's been sort of so connected to that association for such a long time. It did. It felt extremely special. And they spoiled me. Not only did they give me the lovely award, they gave me presents. They gave <laughs> me wonderful flowers and chocolates and champagne and a beautiful piece of jewellery and a wonderful vase with my name engraved on it. I mean, really, they spoilt me. And the whole occasion at the awards ceremony was full of wonderful surprises. And my friend, Jo, who was doing the comparing, had I, we'd spent all day together and she never said a word of any <laughs> of the things that were going to go on. So I was completely surprised. But there was one time when we went into the room and she saw a sofa and two chairs by it and she said, ah, oh. and I thought, why is she excited about a sofa? 
on a stage. I didn't quite get it. I didn't ask her because I thought, well, you know, for some reason. But it was because where she was going to make me sit while uh. we did the This Is Your Life thing, which was <laughs> amazing. I mean, really, it was very – I was very overwhelmed by it and very, very touched, as you can imagine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, even though you're you're sort of stepping down as president and, and, and sort of taking a slight step back from the, the kind of running of the whole thing – uh, will will you still very much be a part of the RNA? You'll be um, kind of in and out and involved. Yes, I I really hope so. I I don't know how much they'll want me to be involved, but <laughs> I really, you know, I still love the people. I still love my fellow writers. I really love helping other writers. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that gives me the big kick is helping someone on their way. It may just be helping them find an agent or helping them actually with their writing or whatever, or just saying, keep going, you're going to get there, which yeah. honestly is all we want a lot of the time. Because <laughs> yeah. people can say things like, well, don't you think you'd better take up another hobby? You're not going very far with this. And you really don't want to be told that by anyone, and no. which is why I would never, ever tell anyone that. Yeah, sometimes you just you just need someone to say uh, you've got to hang in there and persevere, and you know eventually it'll happen. Exactly. I had to took me ages, years and years and years, um, and it doesn't take everyone nearly as long as it took me. Although actually, it does take some people longer, but it's still possible, and people still get there, and it's it's lovely for me to see those people get there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we get to the the final question, I did just want to quickly. Um, touch on on your website katieford.com you uh you have a beautiful range of homeware and and stationery sets was was that just something that you'd always kind of wanted to do well to be honest it's my daughter really it's her project uh. <laughs> but um with the mugs she was fed up with me complaining about mugs not being the right size or not being made out of the right stuff the thing with a mug, and I'm sure you understand, if it's too big, the tea's gone cold before you've got to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And if it's too small, not enough tea. I don't like a thick mug to drink out of. And so she said, well, if you're so fussy, you should produce your own. And so that's sort of how the idea started. And then we added in tea towels and other things I was quite fussy about. And oh, so okay. it's her project. But it's nice because it means if I'm sending someone a book and I – think somebody needs something a little special i can give them a tea towel or a mug or a notebook or something nice just to make it special although that isn't why we're supposed to be doing it don't tell my daughter that's what i said <laughs> okay. because obviously we're supposed to be selling them but in yeah. fact they make great gifts and if i have a writing course which i do sometimes run as a way of raising money for charity they're great fun to put in the goodie bags so i you know definitely use them for that Uh, so that's why you know they're they're good to have but as i say it's my daughter's project really okay because she was she was fed up with your complaining she was she was (laughs) yes okay well that's great and now now you now you can't complain because you have specified the exact sizes and all of that exactly if i haven't got (laughs) a decent mug to drink out of now it's my own fault (laughs) yeah you'll have to make a new one (laughs) exactly well that brings us to um, the final question of, of the interview, which, as always, is, Katie, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you choose? Well, 
Obviously, I've had time to think about this over many, many years when I've been listening to Desert Island Discs, mm-hmm. thinking, what would I, you know, what would I choose as my book? And I don't know if this is a cheat, but I think I'd like the biggest anthology of poetry that's possible. <laughs> because I do really like reading poetry. I mm-hmm. always have done since I was at school, we used to learn a lot of it. And I love poetry. And I do think. Quite a long poem. Um, what's quite long from a poem can be quite a short story. You can get narrative from a poem as well as beautiful language. And it can make you think. I mean, so many of the poems that I know really well, I won an anthology as a school prize back in, you know, a long, long time ago. And I know a lot of those poems really well. And they all create a, the what if make me think about what was the rest of the story. So I think if I had that with me on a desert island, I'd not only have things to read, but I'd have things to stimulate my imagination. Yes. And there's with poetry, especially, I mean, this is the same with most literature, but with poetry, especially there's, there's often, you know, hundreds, thousands of different ways to interpret a single poem um because as you say it's like it's 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 everything that's going on around it it's all the it's the gaps between the words it's in the pauses and things and it's how you imagine filling that space exactly exactly and how some lines of poetry are just so sp- particularly wonderful and you look at them and you just think they're very simple words why is it that they're just touching me in the way that they do and i i love that i don't think i'd ever get bored yeah so it would be whatever the biggest possible poem anthology it is available. Thank you very much. <laughs> what um, if I could pick your brain for something specific? Do you have a a, a favourite poem? There's one poem I was asked to choose, and Harriet Walter was going to read it for me at a literary festival, and it's called Patterns, and it's by Amy Lowell. And it's so sad. I had oh. to sit on the stage next to Harriet Walter, who, of course, read it beautifully, not too actressy. You know, sometimes when actors read poetry, they put too much expression in and they don't mm-hmm. let the words shine. But it's about a woman, probably in Cavalier times, walking up and down a garden um, in her stiff silks and things. And then she gets a letter to hear that her husband has died. And it's so heartbreaking. And I had to sit and tears pouring down my cheeks as Harriet Walter read this poem. And it is a very beautiful poem, very tragic. But it's such a romantic novel, all in Mm -hmm. its own, all in itself. And then she goes back to walking up and down between the topiary trees in her silks thinking about her husband and it doesn't sound terribly sexy and exciting but <laughs> actually if you read it it does you know yes. it does have everything in it well it sounds great and to to bring you to tears on stage um i'm sure it's a very powerful piece of literature uh, it was to me <laughs> <laughs> it was at least to you amazing well that's it, that's a it's a great choice uh, and always great to go for a big one but Thank you so much, Katie, for coming on the podcast and um, sharing your your writing experience, telling us about your 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 latest novel, One Enchanted Evening, um, and, and just kind of telling us all about the RNA and all of that great stuff. It's been really great chatting. Oh, well, it was lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. 
And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Katie is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Katie Ford, uh, on Instagram at Ford Katie, or head over to her website, katieford.com. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. We have a Patreon now for exclusive access and content. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Katie, and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.